You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. We are still at the Living Soils Symposium. I'm Christoph Jospe here with my co-host, Ross Kenyon. We're really excited to do this podcast, listener. I think you will figure out why. If you've been following this journey all along, this is a real treat for you. And if you're just tuning in for the first time, welcome. Happy to have you on board. Ross, how about I pass it over to you? Sure. Hello and bienvenue uh, to the podcast. Happy to be here in Quebec, in Montreal. We have with us today Joel Salatin, or since we're in Quebec, do you prefer Joel Salatin? Is that... <laughs> Either one is fine. <laughs> uh, that's good. Uh, you probably know him from his many books uh, that are excellent and well worth a read. Uh, Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma, which has actually aged very well. I recently read it, and uh, I'm glad that it holds up. And also, you might know him as the self-described lunatic from Food, Inc., if you've seen that documentary wanted to dive in, Joel. We like getting people's backstory. Can you tell us about the Joelness of Joel? Well, sure. Uh, so we're in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Our family came to the farm in 1961. My dad and mom did the typical, uh, you know, off the farm work to make enough cash to pay the mortgage and pay for it. it. Took about 10 years to pay the farm. So as I was growing up there, you know, I fell in love with it, got my first chickens when I was 10 and just loved the farm and wanted to be there full time. And so through high school, I sold at the local curb market and uh, cut my teeth on direct marketing there, sold to a couple schools, restaurants, and understood that a small farmer, you know, we had to wear the marketer, the distributor, the processor hats to get that increased income. And um, so after college, came back, did a two and a half year stint as a investigative reporter at the local newspaper. And uh, Teresa and I got married, lived in a lived in an attic uh, apartment in the farmhouse, drove a $50 car, lived on 300 bucks a month, grew all of our own food, uh, made all our own you know heat with our firewood, never went out to eat. We never had a TV. We still don't have a TV and devoted ourselves to this dream of, uh, of farming. And today we're, you know, bumping on a three million dollar business with 20 full time salaries servicing about 50 restaurants, 4,000 families, several institutions, and um, it's, uh, it's a very exciting ride. Yeah, your farming practices are extremely well known. I had a friend over recently, and I was reading your books preparing for this. I was trying to explain exactly how you do what you do, and I seized upon the simple imagery of biomimicry. And you're you're trying to emulate natural systems. You're not trying to conquer nature. You're not trying to fight nature. You're trying to take advantage of that natural momentum in the simplest way possible. There's a, there's a gracefulness to it. Is that a fair description? It is. In some ways, I call it a, a choreography. So our whole idea is, how does nature function? And when you look at nature, you see, well, there's animals, animals move, they don't stay in the same place. You know, soil is built by fertility in situ, you know, you don't ship carbon very far. And you start putting some of these uh, things together. And it's all about the pattern. Can we cut around that nature's pattern? And can we lay it down on a on a farmscape and duplicate nature's pattern on a farmscape? And you have this 
beautiful phrase, mob stalking, herbivorous, solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization. You picked it up at the end, but you're not as good at saying that as Joel. Let me try it one more time. Mob stalking, herbivorous, solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization. He had to say it see, twice. He, he still stumbled, you see. It's hard. See, you don't it's realize hard. that I that I spent you know hours in front of a mirror saying, Mob stalking, herbivorous, solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization, uh, before I did it the first time in public. So you are you are way braver than I am, Crystal. It's funny because uh, we have, since we're here in Quebec, there are headphones because obviously not everyone is bilingual. And so I don't know what the translator had to do to even get that. They probably were just like, pass. Yeah. <laughs> yes, weird uh, hippie thing. I don't know how to say. Okay, okay but that's that's the technique, right? That's, that's what you're doing yes. here. Yes, yes. Uh, the whole idea is to mimic the way the bison, the pheasants, the prairie chickens, all of this movement. You know, if, if we could close our eyes and think back, you know, to pre-European America, North America, I think if there's one thing that would strike us as we just say, say we could fly a, a drone <laughs> over North America in 1500, what would strike us is the sheer activity of things going on, the animals, the birds, and the diversity of plants, the amount of biomass to, to think about eight to 10 foot tall grass in Nebraska and Kansas stretching out for the sand hills, you know, as far as the eye can see, just a, this sea of grass. And even New Mexico, you know, was, was full of, of grass, forage. And uh, just that abundance, that picture of abundance, it's, uh, it's, it's quite it's quite a powerful picture. Yeah, I remember reading uh, Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage about Lewis and Clark's expedition. Yes. And it, it seems like they didn't have to go anywhere to hunt. They'd be like, today we killed 20 elk. You're like, just from the river? You didn't have to go anywhere? It was that abundant? Yeah, and, and with a flintlock. Yeah. I mean, this, so yeah, they probably this, missed a lot too. this, this wasn't a pump shotgun, you know? It was a, it was a flintlock, yeah. And it's, it's kind of funny when you think, or looking back 100 years or even millennia, and in reading your book, The Pigness of Pigs, you talk about things that used to be that aren't there anymore that did great ecosystem services like the beavers or the ways that soil was totally built up. And so here we are, humans trying to do the right thing by Mother Nature and mm -hmm. trying to really be stewards of the land because God has given us this land and we want to do our best to take care of it. But could you talk a little bit about, I don't know, for lack of a better word, the pillaging that humans have done to the earth? Well, yeah, if you study uh, the rise and fall of civilizations, what dominate, you know, the books in the history record are all the wars, you know, you war, war, war. But most of those wars were about land and about resources and, and feeding our people or ocean access, harbors. So the resource uh, rise and fall of civilization is unfortunately a story that doesn't get told as much as, as the consequence of resource exploitation, which was conquering, you know, then, then you have a war. And in fact, a lot of people think today that the next wars in the world will be over things like water. You know, it, it, it won't be over typical. And so the rise and fall of civilizations, I mean, think of Egypt and India and, and different things, all of the, uh, all of the deserts in the world uh, were man-created. I mean, Homer, who wrote the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, walked across the entire of North Africa and said he never left a shade of a tree. And, uh, you know, to imagine that 
desert was at one time a forest thousands of years ago is quite amazing. And in our own North America here, you know, the abundance from 200 million beavers, you know, 150 million bison. I mean, in fact, it should give us all pause to realize that 500 years ago, there was more weight. There was more weight of animals on North America 500 years ago than there is today, including all the people. That's amazing. I noticed also that you love referencing 1491 by Charles Mann. And another part of this story is that the landscapes, especially of the Americas, were not just naturally created, but actually quite intensively managed. And the human factor of it, when environmentalists sometimes think about nature, humans are apart from it. They are separate. But the way that you farm, you think actually this is part of like an active management experience of nature. And that is a key thing that we're losing in this sort of debate over the environment. Well, sure. When we look back at what I call the kind of the conquistador mentality toward resources, anyone who cares and who thinks wants to repent in sackcloth and ashes. All right. So I've done that. I, 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 I admit. Let's do that. But is the answer then that, well, because our ancestors treated it this way, and it was treated badly, well, then the only way we can interact with the ecology with integrity is to abandon it. And so let's let's lock it up in a state park, a wilderness area. Let's, let's lock it up somewhere so that the only way to actually have integrity ecology management is to make sure we don't desecrate it with human breath. And I suggest, yes, I get the guilt. I get the, oh, I'm sorry. Well, let's do that, wipe ourselves off and stand up and use our intellectual capacity and our mechanical ability in our hands, and let's instead use these hands that have harmed and and intellectual ability that have harmed and use them to heal. So rather than having environmentalism by abandonment, let's have environmentalism by participation. Joel, do people know where to place you? Because some of the things you say strike one as very left-wing. Other things are very conservative and, and sometimes very free market. Uh, listeners to the show will know that we reference all sorts. We reference free market economics. We reference quite liberal environmental readings, deep ecology, stuff like that. We, it keeps things interesting to read stuff you might not always agree with or don't agree with 100%. I know that's a big value of yours that you reference. Sure. What, what is wrong with the left's approach to environmentalism? And... Uh, I really enjoyed everything I want to do is illegal. The stories in that, I think, I'm sorry to ramble here. I'll say one more thing. I think most people, when they hear, like, if you ask them, should X be regulated, the knee-jerk reaction would be like, well, sure, yes. And they're not always thinking about how the details really matter. And just more of it for the sake of it is often quite dangerous. And you've been on the business end of that many times. What are they missing? Can can I just pile on a funny anecdote at the campfire where Joel was basically holding court and a bunch of Canadians we're saying, well, of course, more policy is good for farming. And j- yeah. I can see where this is going. <laughs> you were very diplomatic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, again, the whole idea that government intervention, I'll just use that as a broad term, government intervention is necessary on so many levels, assumes that there is an elite that knows way more than the crowd. And often it's the commoner, it's the peasant who actually has the common sense knowledge to figure out how to do things. And when you arrogate all the decision-making to a centralized level and assume that a bunch of academic elites are going to be able to uh, determine the best approach, you necessarily dismiss or marginalize the contribution of all of the peasants 
who were actually down here in the trenches working every day. And so I think the reason that I've taken the moniker Christian Libertarian Environmentalist Capitalist Lunatic, I've taken that moniker is because I frankly got tired of, well, he's an environmentalist, so I guess he wants bigger government, more agencies, more oversight, you know, name your additional government. And what I've seen, I mean, I can just give you an example. The environmentalists got through legislation, for example, to subsidize riparian protection on farms. So they paid farmers, if you get your cows out of the creek, we'll pay to have an alternative water system put in so they don't have to drink in the creek. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Sure. But the problem is, by the time the bureaucracy got through it, they would not put in mobile, portable water systems. They were all concrete pads with, you know, installed water systems that did not have enough flow to handle mob stocking. So here you have now thousands of farms in the United States with government-supported riparian protection water schemes, infrastructure, that precludes mob stock grazing because the water flow in each of these little permanent stationary founts Number one, they're stationary, so you don't have water where the cows need to be. And number two, the flow is assuming a continuous graze model, which is, you know, what's the orthodoxy, continuous graze model, where 10 cows can access this waterer for an hour and 10 cows access that one for an hour, and you don't have to get all the water together. When you begin actually mimicking what the bison did in nature, and you start running groups of 500, 600, 1,000 animals together on, on small acreages and moving them in this biomimicry migratory choreography, it creates needs for different infrastructure to accommodate that level of biomass and biological management. And you can't do it with a little you know, piece of concrete and a little toilet tank stopper on it. Uh, you need some different infrastructure. So that's a perfect, so we actually lease farms who have participated in this you know, environmental money. And the first thing we do is completely abandon that whole multi-thousand dollar government paid for program because there's really nothing in it that we can use. And we have to put in our own system that's functional. And so, you know, there's just an example of good intentions gone awry because the devil is in the details and it is in how you how you actually implement the program. And, and that can be said, you know, over and over and over again. Yeah. What breaks my heart about policy like that is, is that once it's in place and it goes through the legislative process, which who knows how many hands get in the cookie jar in that process. But <laughs> even even assuming that it makes it through relatively unscathed, uh, conditions on the ground can change. And then if you're locked into this thing, like there's no what's Milton Friedman's line, something like there's no such thing as temporary government program. And like once those rules are set, like they're probably going to be there for a while. So I think a base level of skepticism saying, is this going to adapt fast enough? Is this the best way to do this? And I'm not sure. And you have things too, like, yeah. oh, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. A, a perfect example. I'll give you a perfect example. So in 1906, Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle. And as the food system industrialized and it developed in its industrialization and opaqueness, People got concerned about can we trust arm armor? Can we trust Swift Company? Can we trust these you know these big outfits? And um, and of course Upton Sinclair exposed a lot of problems in there. And um, Teddy Roosevelt, being a, a fairly communist kind of guy, was happy to create an agency of oversight, the Food Safety Inspection Service. So here we go through this industrial system with an industrial scale oversight and a whole federal agency. 
And we move up closer to today, and what's happened is that this oversight is now extremely prejudicial to small-scale operations. And so I can tell you, you know, when the inspection service visited us the first time and we had this open-air uh, chicken processing facility. That's on Food Inc., right? It is. Yes, it is. It's, it's on Food Inc., yeah. They told us we were illegal. I said, why? Well, they said, because you can't be outside and be sanitary. I guess these guys never go on picnics. But anyway, they said you inherently can't be sanitary and be outside, even though we had empirical data showing that we had 25 times less colony-forming bacterial units per milliliter than the chlorinated factory USDA-inspected uh, chicken. So here we were fighting for our farm and our viability on a system that was predicated on an industrial scale, as our politicians, legislative aide said when we had a big meeting with them, she said, is it possible that you bureaucrats could not have conceived of an operation like Polyface when you were making this regulation? Of course, of course they didn't. What I'm getting to is that there's a lot of thinking now that with Uberization, let's just you know, Uber. Think of what a shakeup Uber has been. You mean you get in a car with a complete stranger and you don't know whether the car's uh, been through a rigorous checking. You don't know the person's background. Well, why? Why does Uber work? Because there's an instantaneous feedback loop. If you're a bad rider, they can say, we're not going to pick you up anymore. And if you don't like the driver, they're out of business. So the uberization of the economy is part of the, the fragmentation of democratized information. And so in the food system, as we bring this to the food system, the reason we didn't have to have government oversight in food safety 500 years ago in the village was because everybody knew who the shyster butcher baker and candlestick maker were because the village talked, right? Gossip, you know, and everybody talked about it. As we industrialize the food system and put big trespassing, no trespassing security fences around everything, the food system became industrially opaque, which created fear in people. Now, with the internet and with real-time feedback, auditing and monitoring and conversations, the uberization of our real-time feedback loop is mimicking the village the village feedback loop of the butcher, baker, and candlestick maker of 500 years ago, making the industrial scale food safety oversight of neighbor to neighbor food commerce obsolete. I love what you're saying. And it brings to mind something that you had brought up when you were at this fireside chat and said, well, if I'm, if I'm king for a day and I really want to change, change one thing, it That's would give, juicy, huh? give people the freedom to choose where their food comes from, which seems a lot like that's the Uberization, right? But yes. can, can you unpack yes. that for us? And also in terms of this, where policy has gone wrong, but how this might make great effects in policy. Well, listen, every day I travel around the world and especially in the developed world. Now, not, not so much in Africa and in you know other places. I don't want to be condescending here, but you know what I'm talking about. The, the less sophisticated, less technocracy uh, type of cultures. But in the ones that are, what we have is a complete lack of choice, of food choice in the marketplace. If I want to buy a glass of raw milk, I can't buy a glass of raw milk. And yet, if I decide that's what my body wants for fuel, I mean, to feed my three trillion member internal microbiome, some elite person out there, has told me, no, I can't do that. 
So, you know, we live in a time of choice. I'm going to use some loaded words here. And so I would simply suggest that with the amount of choice available to consenting adults as voluntary participants in acts of choice, that should be extended to something as intimate as what becomes flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones. And so I'm a big believer in what I call the Food Emancipation Proclamation, where we would free up the latent entrepreneurial food system for participants who actually see the regulatory oversight as demanding something that harms us instead of helps us. You know, when they say we have to put an antimicrobial on our chickens, for example— to become government inspected to have an antimicrobial on the chickens. We don't want to put an antimicrobial on our chickens. And you should have the right to choose a chicken that doesn't have antimicrobials on it. You know, this just seems so, so basic human rights that the human right to choose our own food is certainly as big a human right as whether to worship or speak or assemble or any of the other rights that most of us in the free world have. I find it a bit insulting that you use the example of a waiver. How come I can't go to a local farm and waive my rights to sue or say, hey, I know I'm taking the risk here. I know it's not USDA inspected, yet that is not good enough. No, it's not good enough because every legal expert that we've consulted says at the end of the day, you can't wave away your you can't wave away your safety. In other words, if you go to a playground and you sign a hold harmless uh, arrangement and and the playground owner actually had a piece of equipment that was negligently kept up, Mm -hmm. you can still sue because you can't wave away your rights to safety. So yeah, we tried that. We tried that in Virginia. We uh, we went through the, the whole state to see if we couldn't get all of our people to sign a waiver. All of our people are happy to sign a waiver, but no, it just doesn't hold up. So we might not be making friends by doing this podcast. We've been picking on the left. We've been picking on the government. We're, we're coming for the right, too. That's All right. coming. It's coming right now. So let's pick on the right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, your your book, um, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs, is, is I think it's unique among your books because it's written for your tribe, right? Yes, it, it is. I, I call it my coming out book. Uh, <laughs> I've waited a long time to, to do that. But yes, uh, again, my moniker is Christian Libertarian Environmentalist Capitalist. The first one is Christian. And of course... The faith community as a whole has certainly not been known for environmental stewardship. In fact, it's been known to disparage tree huggers, pinko kami, you know, earth muffin. I mean, we got all sorts of earth muffin. <laughs> earth okay, muffins. Okay. We, 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 got, we got all sorts of cool, uh, you know, slang phrases. And there's been quite a bit of tension between the faith community and the environmental community. And so I actually see this as a real problem in the faith community where where we say, well, it's all God's stuff. And I ask, well, do you think God is really happy for a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico? It's Dominion, Joel. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm pitching <laughs> them right to you. Right, right, right. Yeah, I know. It's all about Dominion, except Dominion is uh, arrogated to a place of conquistadorism. That's not a word, but I think everybody knows what I'm I'll talking about. Yeah. <laughs> You'll allow it. If it expresses what you're saying, it's good enough. Conquistadorism as opposed to nurturing. I mean, the dominion, yes, power is part of it, but the other part of it is, oh, I'm in charge. That means I'm responsible for all this. That's the other side that is not part of the conversation. It's all about the power as opposed to the responsibility. 
And so I'm trying to bring into that discussion the need to dare to ask, is what's on the menu, is what I believe in the pew reflected in what's in the menu? Does God care? And uh, you know, those are questions that are big. I mean, why is it that in the average church, if you have a potluck and you dare to go to the elders and say, um, can we not use any styrofoam? How about we go down to the thrift store and buy a bunch of plates and we'll wash them with an eco-friendly detergent? In the <laughs> you get funny looks, huh? In the average yeah, church, well. what are you, some sort of greeny weeny earth muffin, you know? Uh, I, I mean, that that's that's... <laughs> That's the reaction. And so what I've found is if there is one nonpartisan thing, it's food because we all eat. I mean, you can even be a nudist, you know, so, but 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 food you pretty much have to partake of. And that's a that's a really broad bridge. And so if we come back to food as an expression of what kind of food as an expression of earth of, of creation stewardship, it pushes the faith community down this road to wrestle with, well, is there a right and wrong way to farm? Is there a right and wrong way to produce food? And I don't have all the answers, but I know that it honors God to at least wrestle with the question. And that's what I'm trying to bring. I would think so. One thing I really like about Christianity is that the standard that Christ set is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to actually mimic as a, as a mortal, as a, as a fallen being, as, as one sure. might say theologically. And one of the reasons why Christianity may not be as popular in my generation as, as it was in others is that standard is so difficult. And there's very few people that I see that you might label as consistently Christian. Mm -hmm. Like I see Seventh-day Adventists or Quakers who are really rigorous. It's very hard to maintain that level of saying no to war, mm -hmm. uh, not wanting your taxes, potentially willing to go to jail because you don't want to pay for war. Mm -hmm. And so you have Christians who sometimes sometimes it doesn't feel like their heart is fully in it or that you're that committed because Christianity is a really radical idea. Well, it is. And so I think that part of the reason why the, the church, if you will, has lost a lot of its power is the hypocrisy of it. I mean, whether it's the Roman Catholic uh, sex scandals that, of course, are rocking our, our world and yeah. rocking the Roman Catholic Church right now, or whether it's young people who go to science class, you know, environmental sciences class, and learn about what we, what grandma and grandpa uh, have done to the earth, and then go to church and don't hear anything addressed about that. And yet, you know, we recite the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we say that in the creed and in the, you know, in the stuff, they're seeing that level of hypocrisy there as well. And nothing drives away people quicker from organizations than hypocrisy, having your walk not match your talk. And so in The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs, I've uh, enjoyed kind of putting forth the idea that all of physical creation is an object lesson of spiritual truth. Because you're right, spiritual truth often is nebulous. What, what does forgiveness look like? You know, what does loving your neighbor look like? All right. And so I think, I may be wrong, but I think one of the reasons that we have this physical creation is so that God could demonstrate what forgiveness looks like, what neighborliness looks like. And guess what? Forgiveness does not look like a farm that has to use more and more drugs all the time to keep its animals healthy. 
That's not forgiving. Forgiving is not a farm that has to use more chemicals to keep its soil healthy or keep the bugs away. A forgiving farm is one that has resilience. That's the environmental term, resilience. But forgiving means that it has more stability, more balance. Trust me, a, a, a golden rule farm, do unto your neighbors what you want them to do unto you, is not a farm that stinks up the neighborhood or pours pollution down a river or makes a dead zone and eliminates the shrimp fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico. That is not neighborliness. And so bottom line for me is I want people who come and visit our farm, I want them as they leave to say to each other, oh, that's what forgiveness looks like. Oh, that's what abundance looks like. Oh, that's what neighborliness looks like. And if we can get the spiritual concepts physical, then perhaps the faith community could reestablish some credibility in our world. It sounds like you're onto something. So we've been we've been throwing punches on all sides of the political spectrum. <laughs> I have one more uh, on that theme too. Well, I'm just queuing you up, Ross. Maybe I'd be asking your question okay, here. Okay, give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, so so what's so what's wrong with libertarians? Oh yeah, yeah what's wrong? Blind spots oh, too. Let's, yeah, let's abso- do that. absolutely. The problem with libertarians is that they take a completely uh, me-sided approach to everything. They, they they deny that it takes a village. And it does take a village. And so they, you know, they laugh at Hillary for saying, you know, it takes a village. Well, it does take a village. Anybody who's had a child knows it takes a village. Okay. And if we look at soil, the soil, you know, the actinomycetes, the mycelium, the gibberellins, the azotobacter bacteria, nothing exists by itself. It, it is a village. It's a village in the soil. It's a, it's a village in our home. It's a village in our community. Uh, it, it is a village. And so, you know, the libertarians, uh, I mean, one of the, one of the uh, key gurus of libertarianism, he, he actually visited our farm and he said as he left, well, of course I'm an earth firster. First we take over the earth and, and use it up. And now we're going to go to Mars and use it up. And oh, God, can you tell me who it was? What? There was a secret. No, I, 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 I won't. <laughs> Do that. Okay, but, fair enough. But 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 you know, I, I just I was speechless. How could anybody be that that ridiculous? And so one of the reasons that I use the word commons so frequently, commons, a we don't hear it enough. I think in, in our in our discussions, just in our culture, we don't hear the word commons. It's got a little bit of a heritage to it, you know, the commons. The, mm-hmm. And among millennials especially, it really stimulates conversation. Commons. Com- what do you mean by that? I haven't heard that word. No, it's the stuff that was here before us, like soil, like air, like water, like like community intellectual capacity. It's the commons. And so we believe that as a result of farming, that we should leave more commons to our children rather than le- fewer commons. And of course, America, as well as most, most agriculture in the world, has actually left less commons, less potable water, uh, less soil, you know, less breathable air. And so as a libertarian, yes, I'm a small governmenter, but I think that we need to message the village and the commons, and we're not an island, we're not independent, we're not just individuals, we're way more than that as well. And I think that's where the libertarians have a weakness, is failure to recognize those larger dimensions of individual responsibility and liberty. Just to make a comment on that, I mean, that's sort of, that's regeneration, right? That's yeah. not just our land, but our communities, and we're leaving it better than we found it. Yeah. Over to you, Ross. 
Yeah, I'm not totally sure why that is. If you read someone like F.A. Hayek, his focus on complexity and like being embedded in social systems that are, are diverse and multidimensional, that's a whole different way of thinking about society rather than this sort of like neoclassical supply and demand, libertarian, econometric approach to everything. I'm not sure why that latter approach is always so favored or at least is the more caricatured version that you see everywhere. But I'm not sure why that is because it's part of the tradition too. It's just neglected a little bit. Yeah, well, one of the one of the uh, significant problems Problems you mentioned uh, economists, so I'll, I'll go there just for a moment. One of the problems that we have in our culture, in fact, in in Western culture, all the cultures basically that are you know outgrowths of the Greco-Roman Western reductionist, linear, compartmentalized, individualized. Uh, Did you just generate these things everywhere, or what? Segmented, <laughs> segregated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so 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 one of the problems is that we don't have a way to measure. You mentioned the word complexity, which is a wonderful word, the complexity of ramifications of an activity. So what happens is in America, we measure our success by gross domestic product, GDP, gross domestic product. Well, if I go out and pollute the river in front of my house, that actually adds to gross domestic product because it's going to take labor, machinery, energy, and time to clean it up. Yeah, you created jobs. And you create jobs. Yeah. And so, you know, prisons are a perfect example. Oh, wow. You know, the fastest growing job market in the world, security in prisons and all, all of that should come off the gross domestic product as a, as a liability. If you do accounting, you know, there's, there's liabilities and assets, right? Mm-hmm. And to call more prisons assets is absurd to call production of corn without accounting to the fact that every bushel of corn costs us three bushels of soil to call the bushel of corn an asset without measuring the three bushels of soil as a liability. I'm out of words to describe. How is that possible? <laughs> uh, it's, it's um, well, it certainly is untrue. It's a lie. And so the fact is that a culture that doesn't have away either in accounting or in the political sphere or whatever to account for these massive asset losses or liability incursions is a society doomed to fail. You, you, you can't call bad good and expect it to function. So to, to take it back to the mob stalking, herbivorous, solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization. Hey, that, that you're was getting better. Really That's good. smooth. <laughs> can, smooth. I, can I interject real quick, though? Joel, do you have somewhere to be at any time? No. Okay. We're going to leave that in well, the tapes probably. Yes, I do, but but not soon. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Sorry, Christoph. Go back to your lovely, you did it. You Thanks. the whole thing. Thanks, Ross. Well, <laughs> so, so, so to take it back to that thing I just said... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're talking about assets and assets. If it's a piece of equipment, it depreciates. But here in the mob stocking herbivorous yep. solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization, oh, wow. you have appreciating assets. That's you have right. animals which are growing bigger. Mm-hmm. And hey, what do you know? They're sequestering carbon, which obviously Nori cares deeply about because we want to help people who are doing that thing get paid to do more of that thing and create an incentive market where people are like, hold on, I can farm carbon and there's a voluntary market out there that's going right. to pay me for my carbon removal certificates. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack. You could talk about appreciating versus depreciating assets, but that's not actually my question. Maybe you can work it in there. You have a way. <laughs> I want to talk about scale. Like we want more of you all around the world sure. to start doing this thing now to present an alternative to people who care deeply about how their food is produced and where their food comes from and the 
interaction between that land steward and the way that food is made to say, you know what, I choose that and I want that. But like kind of spell it out for us. How do you see this going down and all happening a whole lot more quickly? Yeah, well, goodness. Again, if I could be king for the day, I would eliminate all crop insurance and government subsidies. You heartless bastard. <laughs> yeah, Joel. I know. It's completely heartless. Wait, can but, you just tell us why, why is that bad? Well, why, why it's bad is that, again, you have a preferred group that has decided this group, we're going to take taxpayer dollars from you with violence at the point of a gun. Uh, you know, if you don't pay your taxes, they're, they're going to come after you. And we're going to concessionize. We're going to, we're going to make sure that we protect and shelter this certainly little segment here. And we're not going to deal with another one. So what happens is you start picking winners and losers in the marketplace. You, you arbitrarily pick winners and losers in the marketplace. The problem is that the marketplace is way too dynamic to be able to do that with any level of whatever integrity because it's flexing it's 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 moving around and so if we took away i mean this is the whole michael pollan's thing is is why does a why does a carrot you know cost more than a snickers bar well it's it's because carrot farmers don't get crop insurance you know the corn farmers that make the corn syrup to go in the snickers bar get the crop insurance so what you have is a skewed you have a skewed valuation of commodities and of foodstuffs in the marketplace. And so the first way to bring honesty into the marketplace is to take out the prejudicial governmental involvement that skews the winners and losers. It, it makes winners out of people who otherwise would lose and makes losers out of people who otherwise would win. And that's Incredible in a time where social justice is on everybody's lips, that should curl the hair of anybody who wants to espouse justice. Yeah, one thing I've seen too with regard to food, or just talking about capitalism generally, is people will say, uh, "Well, look at like the free market run amok now, where you have uh, right. giant ag companies controlling everything." And if you read like your book, "Everything I Want to Do Is Illegal," like what free market exactly? It seems like there's nothing but regulations that you have to wade through, and you don't have the lawyers to do it. That's you're right. just one guy. That's right. That's right. Farm. We don't have a bunch of attorneys. So yeah, we haven't had a free market in agriculture for a very very long time. And so to say that where we are is a result of free markets is simply to completely disappreciate the amount of manipulation that we've had over a long period of time that has brought us to where we are. Yeah. And what's the, the beginning of wisdom is by calling things by their true name. And you're like, you can't even have a conversation. If, if that is that, if that's capitalism, should we probably all oppose capitalism then? But then is that a useful way to describe the thing? I don't know. You end up in word games pretty quick, I think. Well, you do. Well, I think that the liberals do have a point when they say that capitalism without morality is actually no better than any other system. And I would tend to agree with that. I think, and that's where this this uh, moral capitalism, uh, a moral compass comes into play, which is where we farmers, if it were a level playing field without all of the, uh, I call it the stack deck against us, here's what happens when I've got a neighbor, a neighbor farmer. He's asking me, you know, what I'm doing. I'll tell him what I do. And if it were just he and I having a conversation, I could pretty much win him over every time. But what's the next thing that he does? After our conversation, he goes and he reads what the land-grant universities have said. And the land-grant universities, of course, are all basically lackeys 
of the industrial ag sector. They're the ones that provide the seed money for the research, the seed money for all of that. And so what you have is you have a you have a stacked deck. If it were just he and I being able to have a conversation without any of these, you know, the USDA and the and the land grant universities and the research and all that, if it were just he and I having a conversation, I'd stand a pretty good chance of winning. But because of this inordinate power stacked to promote the orthodoxy, the unorthodox view can hardly get a word in edgewise because of all the verbiage coming from the orthodoxy. But it seems like you've made great progress. Uh, I guess if we go back to the, what is it called? The grass grass farming? What is it? Stockman? Oh, Stockman grass farmer? So you go back to like the yeah. origins of like those, or like Whole sure. Earth Catalog and stuff. Mm-hmm. You crazy. I mean, organic is now mainstream. I, I know there's plenty of criticism to go around for big organic and whether or not that's actually adhering to it. Because right. if you're talking about capitalism uh, without morality being a, a failure, the standard that you're trying to set is quite high. It seems like you you are very passionate about your work and you expect a lot of yourself. And I'm sure people who work with you, it probably is not the easiest job to <laughs> to maintain this standard. And expecting everyone to say, hey, instead of just looking at the label, seeing if it's organic, instead of just relying on the government to pass a law, you have to take responsibility for yourself and all of your consumer choices. I'm busy, Joel. I'm I'm too busy to be doing this. What do you what do you say to someone like that? They just don't want to deal with it. Right. Well, sure. Well, what do I say to somebody like that is, well, good riddance. <laughs> good riddance. <laughs> good riddance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, at, at the end of the day, a tribe or a movement is defined by the participants. And there will always be people who would rather, you know, uh, know something about the Kardashians than, uh, than what will become flesh of their flesh and blown of their bones at four o'clock. And those folks are, you know, they're just they're not in my wheelhouse. But the folks, there are more and more folks who do question corporate industrial ag. They do question the supermarket fair, the industrial organics. Uh, they do question, I'll just call it the orthodoxy, the orthodoxy of the day. And those people are now being rewarded with more and more farmers, more access and more uh, access to information, I think now, from podcasts like this to the internet to visiting their local farmer. I mean, this is one of the big reasons why we have 15,000 visitors a year to our farm and want to increase that, not because you know, we, don't, we don't charge them for visiting necessarily, but we know that getting people to farms is magic. You've, you've got to see it, smell it, touch it, taste it. It has to be a visceral experience. When you viscerally participate in a solution, you own and embrace that solution. And if it's all it is, is academic and you read it in a book or you heard it somewhere, it's never going to be as meaningful or as powerful, profound as it is, you know, when you've actually seen it and touched it. I definitely think that's the case. I think we should start wrapping it up, Jill. I think uh, we could speak with you for a very long time and have enjoyed our time with you. It's very nice to have someone who thinks a little bit differently from our typical guest. Uh, if you're a listener, I hope you feel that we have fairly represented your views because I, I imagine we probably skewered you a little bit no matter who you are. <laughs> I think everyone got it pretty good uh, blasting this episode. Uh, we always try to be fair. We think it's very important. Yeah, to I say I, like I, I'm an but, equal opportunity discriminator. I make everybody mad. And that's what our guard goose. We have a guard goose to guard our chickens <laughs> against hawks. Uh-huh. We say our guard goose is our ultimate, completely non-discriminatory guard animal because 
our guardian dog actually likes people. You know, you can go and pet him. The goose, the goose hates everybody and everything. It hates me. It hates you. <laughs> it hates the hawk. It hates everything. So the goose is, you know, a non-discriminatory guardian animal. Okay. So yeah, I do this because look, I see the inconsistencies in myself and, and I'm the first to admit all of us make choices about inconsistencies. And we could do another podcast on what am I inconsistent about? And I would tell you, I've chosen this. I'm inconsistent there. I mean, you know, so we are. But I think it's fair to say we get a lot farther ahead if we're honest about it and wrestle with it with humor and respect rather than just, I've got it. You don't. And that's the end of the discussion. I don't think anyone likes that. And I would rather have someone who uh, didn't agree with me, but was interesting and thoughtful to speak with than someone who agreed with me, but was boorish about it. Yeah, I think it's it's too life's too short to be have boring intellectual conversations. And there's so much to read and so much to pull from and every school of thought illuminates some things and obscures some other things at the same time. So you, you have to have it's like a kaleidoscope, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to flip between them. And I think you're on the same wavelength with that. <laughs> what were you going to say, Christoph? I was going to ask the question that you had written down, but didn't get to ask, which oh is who is the smartest person that you disagree with? Thank you. This is a hard one. Well, the smartest person I disagree with. Ah, wow. You know, I I would have to think a little while, but probably uh, probably Michael Pollan comes to mind. He, he clearly loves you so much that he, you're the he, hero of that book. Yeah, he does. And, and it's same, same for me. But we would certainly not vote for the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm just mm-hmm. saying, you know. And by the way, I tend to not vote Republican either. I tend to vote Libertarian. I'm not a member of the Libertarian Party, but I tend to vote Libertarian, partly because I tell my Democrat and Republican friends, have lots of them, love them all, but I say, you guys say you want to be inclusive. You want to be inclusive. But when it comes to the presidential debates, you do everything in your power to exclude the Greens, the Socialists, the Constitutionalists, the Libertarians from the debates. Look, if they're really as wacko as you say they are, let them come and show their wackoness. <laughs> but if they have a good idea, what's wrong with hearing that? You know. And so for me, as long as they don't allow the minor parties to participate in the debates, I don't vote for either one of them. That's just that's my stubbornness and my personal... Uh, Whatever integrity, I that's guess. A fine ethic. I think that's a reasonable perspective. And uh, Michael Pollan, we're we're coming for you when you stop tripping. Uh, we we saw that latest book. <laughs> it's on my reading list if you follow yeah. me on Goodreads. But I think if you know if there's a moral to the story of this podcast, it's that innovation happens on the fringes. It happens from the people who have mm-hmm. mobile chicken coops that are moving around and like. Are talking about the eggmobile? The eggmobile. We didn't get to talk about the eggmobile. Too much. There's so too much Joel content. <laughs> We've consumed so much of it. Can you just succinctly define? What is an eggmobile and how does it work? Sure, an eggmobile is a portable hen house that follows the cows three days three days behind the cows. So we're we're moving the cows every day to a new paddock, like the like the migratory bison choreography, and they're leaving manure out in the field where flies lay eggs and hatch out maggots, which turn into new flies. And that cycle is four days. So we follow the cows with the eggmobiles, like the egret on the rhino's nose. Birds symbiotically follow herbivores throughout nature. So we're biomimicking that pattern in nature 
Following the cows with the chickens, they act as biological pasture sanitizers, spreading out the cow dung, eating out the fly larvae, eating the new newly exposed crickets and grasshoppers, turning them into eggs so we don't have to use grubicides and parasiticides in the cows, and we get hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of eggs as a byproduct of pasture sanitation. And this is how Polyface Farms is a $3 million a year operation and growing. So for our listeners, if they want to learn out more, where, where can they go? What, what do you a, encourage them to sure. do? We have a website, polyfacefarms.com. Uh, that's P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E, the farm of many faces, Polyface. If you put in P-O-L-Y, it'll probably pop up. I mean, it's that common in the P-O-L-Y uh, sphere. Uh, as far as polyglot and polygon, and it was polyface is more, polyface is now more uh, famous than polygons and poly. Uh, <laughs> well, that is a, a, a massive achievement in uh, yeah, that, that, that's ultimate Greek success, orthography. Right? Yes. Yeah, the algorithms have finally won. But anyway, you're welcome to come there. I also have a very short daily blog that I do called The Musings from the Lunatic Farmer. Oh, yeah, we both get that. And yes, you are a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah, you can find a lot more information. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Joel. Thank you for your leadership in, uh, I mean, farming this way for carbon farming independently of climate change, uh, along with climate change for all the soil health and erosion and uh, water. There's too many reasons to do what you do, but thank you for sticking your flag in the ground so long ago and being such a huge part of this. I'm not sure what it would look like without you. I imagine it would be a little bit different, maybe less boisterous, probably so. (laughs) Uh, but thank you so much for, for being with us. And I, I look forward to uh, spending more time together in the future. Thanks for having me. It's been a delight. Great. And if you like the show, that was a long one, everyone. It was too too good to cut off. But if you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes, Reversing Climate Change. Tell your friends, get them out there. Check out our other podcast, Carbon Removal Newsroom. And thanks so much for listening.